You're listening to The Real Witches of the End Times, transmissions straight from the underworld. Doom witches, blood wizards, underworld accountants, and cloud people. Welcome back to the Real Witches of the End Times podcast. I'm your host, Mana Aylin. This week, I have Emma Catherine back. Emma Catherine was with us last summer, I believe, last summer or early fall. And we were talking all about resistance magic, rebel magic. If you've seen some of the things that I've talked about on social media, I use the phrase rebel magic a lot because Emma Catherine, when she explained it to me. It was just so perfect for a lot of what I believe in. And I'm just so happy to have you back here today, Emma. Oh, I'm so happy to be back. I really loved speaking to you last time. So yes, not a problem at all. Well, can you remind everyone what it is you do? Yes. Well, um, I am a witch and I practice Obia. And actually, I've just started undertaking my um, priestess training in voodoo as well. So that's I'm pretty busy at the moment with all of that stuff. But I also write for Gods and Radicals, um, The House of Twigs, Witchway Magazine. And I have an article in the latest issue of Cunning Folk Magazine as well. So that was pretty cool. And you had a book come out last fall, Reclaiming Ourselves. Yes, Reclaiming Ourselves, published by Gods and Radicals. Yeah, that's out. Um, and doing really well. Um, because I sometimes suffer from imposter syndrome. And I'm terrible at self-publicizing my own stuff. I, I love shouting out other people's work. But I, <laughs> I struggle so much doing that for myself. But yes, that's out. And it's available through Gods and Radicals. Well, you're one of the few magical practitioners online that I've come across. And obviously this is not to say that they don't exist, but yeah. just that I know of <laughs> that, <laughs> that are very vocal about accessible resistance magic. Yeah, And I love that so much because there's sometimes, you know, a lot of like environmental elitism, like all this stuff that makes difficult things sound like that there's a moral responsibility that people have, but not everyone is capable of living a zero waste lifestyle. Not everyone is capable of resisting in the ways that we're expected to via social media. And I just really appreciate what you've written about in your book and that I've been able to talk to you in general because we met through um, both of our mutual friends, yeah. Jessica. And I would love if you could touch on what Rebel Magic is to you again and some of your principles with that approach. Yeah, of course. And you're right in what you say, there is massive elitism in all of those things that you've touched upon. Yeah, they're great and everybody should be doing them. Um, but, you know, not everybody can. And part of rebel magic for me, um, it's just about actually making those small changes. Because what I found is I live in like a really working class area of England. So I live in Nottinghamshire, you know, like Robin Hood. Nottingham <laughs> that's where I live um and the area I live in it's a small rural town about 20 miles from the city but it's also extremely working class um and the estate I live on it's very working class it's the same estate I grew up on and it's probably got the worst reputation in the town where I live you know and so a lot of what I do in my magic has been influenced by my upbringing and my surroundings and actually seeing people who struggle to do the basic things or have the basic things get done. So for me, rebel magic is about really stripping things right back to the core. And it's about using that magic to affect whatever change it is you really want to see. Um, and, you know, it, when you talk about it, it's really wide ranging and, you know, because when you hear rebel magic, you think, you know, resistance and all of that kind of stuff. But if we look at resistance, where it needs to start is actually, um, for me, anyway, from my perspective, it needs to start with people doing it themselves. And it fe all feeds into that elitism and all of that kind of stuff. And I also go a lot into it in the book as well, where I talk about people struggling to survive, like... I've been in that position before where you're counting pennies to buy food for your tea and 
all of that kind of stuff. And to those people, and normally those people are the working poor, you know, so they're already going out to work, but their jobs simply don't pay enough to live on and to survive. Um, And so it's things like the basics, like really, really basic, because to me, until we can achieve those things and to the point where we don't have to worry about basically staying alive, you know, staying alive is in some aspects, you know, linked to rebel magic. So I see it just, it goes into all areas of life because I feel it has to, you know? Yeah. I I had had those thoughts before I'd seen any of your work or read any of the articles that you'd written before the first time we chatted last year. And I had assumed before, because I hadn't seen someone else articulate them in such a way. And I had been invalidating my own thoughts and I was really putting a lot of pressure on myself to show up in a way that I just wasn't capable of, like literally at the time, like I was doing the best that I could and people around me were, but there's a, there was like a pressure to just, I don't know, like have more, have another avatar to do the amount of things that we want to do, but also that. I just have the view of activism as like an identity and all of that stuff is so strangely skewed now that it's so hard to untangle it and then not devalue what you're doing. If what you literally can do, especially if you have kids or you're working many jobs is not astronomical seeming every single day. Yeah. You know, and so um, I've also been doing, um, and be a mentorship program I don't know if we talked about that last time um but it was something I'd been watching or listening to this um interview with an author and she was talking about OBE and it dying out and that's what kind of led me on to to offer the program but actually what the program really tries to hammer home to people is building that practice and it's starting with the small things because I've seen all too often where people want so hard to change, you know, to make changes for the best, um, whether that's in the environment or helping other people. But sometimes they're so bogged down with their own issues, um, like you say, working multiple jobs, just being generally knackered at the end of the day, having all of those different constraints on your time can really detract from having a solid foundation in your magical practice, whatever that looks like. And so just taking it back down, I often suggest to people who are totally new, I'll say, well, do you meditate? And they'll go, no, I haven't got time for half an hour. I'm like, well, try five minutes first. Because as soon as you start getting into that habit of making time for yourself and for your magical practice, then, you know, it's like that's it opens your eyes kind of and you start seeing things in a different perspective. So all of those really little things that are often overlooked are massively important whether it's magic or just trying to achieve some change in your everyday mundane life. Yeah. And in your book too, you go into a little bit about um, like personal health as well as being an act of resistance. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, And, you know, I've seen people who have spent their whole lives being poor um, but also looking out for other people that they then tend to ignore their own health. And, you know, if you speak to anyone who has health issues, they'll tell you that it's a wake up call to them. As soon as their health starts to deteriorate, they actually see then, you know, how much support and help they need just to go about their own day to day life. So, you know, taking care of ourselves is an act of rebellion um, whether that's doing exercise and do you know what I'm not like a gym bunny I fucking hate exercise <laughs> that's a lie I love kickboxing and boxing so when I started doing that I would um, just go to the gym and just do that and then I started getting really into it so I wanted to improve my overall fitness and then I'd do running and shit like that but I fucking hate running it's like <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah But, you know, all of that stuff feeds into looking after yourself. And you don't have to take it to extremes either. It can just be consciously making different choices um, where possible. 
you know. But yeah, rebel rebel magic. We have to be, you know, you have to be able to do, and I think that's the thing, you know. So a lot of the time we put um, mental blocks in our way. We can't do this because of X, Y, and Z. We can't do this other thing because of the same issues and you know it's just about slowly dismantling those blocks um great if you can do it fast but in my experience I found that people who dive right in they usually you know they dive back right back out again as well um so for me the slow steady approach is always going to be a winner Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I would agree with that with people that I've worked with or like all different aspects of habits in life. It's yeah. if you don't put all that pressure on yourself right away. Yeah. You know, um, because I, I just think pressure, we, we're our own worst enemies sometimes with pressure on ourselves. And like, it's the same within magic as well. I know a lot of people, or I don't know if a lot of people actually, there just seems to be this idea that our magical lives are separate to our everyday lives, but they're not, are they? You know, if you ask anybody really seriously practices, it's hard to kind of disentangle one thing and put it in its own category because they all merge together because we are just, you know, ourselves and there's only one of us. And, you know, like you mentioned earlier, having different avatars to do this, that and the other, um, we are just us. So it's hard to kind of sort out where one thing ends and where another begins. Um and so, yeah, so for me, I see magic in everything. Like, I really struggle to, when people ask the question, what is magic to you? What do you do in your everyday life? You know, it is my everyday life. So, um, yeah, it's just about building practice and getting to that point where it does become something you do every day. I really like how when we, we talked a little bit about European mentorship when we first met. And one thing that I think you started to make the point on here as well in this episode was that Obia is a practice that's dying out, or you heard it was. Yeah. And since then, part of your rebel magic is making sure that doesn't happen. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And like, I've got some great ladies on the course. Um, and, you know, there's people... So the course lasts for about a year, give or take. And I say give or take because, you know, it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's individualized for different people on the course and so some people will finish earlier some people might take a little bit longer and then there's some people who I might decide to do a little bit extra with um it's all very individual but yeah you know and I suppose it goes back to any tradition being part of rebel magic is ensuring the survival of what you're doing and not letting it get wiped out or you know not letting it die away I think that's a really interesting approach to take. Um, I'm I'm working through something similar with some like Thai occult practices too with my family. Yeah. And, you know, I think we discussed before, like the, sometimes the struggles of race and all of that kind of stuff get in the way Um, because I'm mixed race. My my dad is Jamaican, born in Jamaica. My mum's white English. And so, you know, for me, learning Obia was a a part of delving into that side of my culture because I live in England I'm very much British you know and I live embedded within the British culture and so the Jamaican culture was something that although I I experienced it albeit secondhand through the interactions with my family and all of that kind of thing the delving into Obia was really a way of me um just learning about myself, really, the different areas of myself. Yeah, I feel very similarly about some of the uh, magical pursuits I've had the past year specifically, because I was, you know, I'm, um, my dad's side is pretty white. And so yeah, <laughs> I, I grew up in the, that culture with, um, with light skin and all of that. But yeah. it's now been more of like, a again, like a reclaiming myself, if we're going to go <laughs> with, yeah. with the book theme of realizing, <laughs> oh, this is a piece of my identity this other part of me that I was kind of taught to think didn't really exist society yeah and the thing is as well it's it can get so complicated with politically correctness and everything else because nobody wants to be an ass, you know and, and offend people but at the same time you know there were times when I really felt that um I 
I really felt pressured to either be one side or another. Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, and I was actually fucking sick of just doing that. I just wanted to be me. So this is me and all of these things are a part of me. And, you know, I just got really sick of having to separate out what is white in English, what is Jamaican, what, do you know what I mean? And it just gets mm-hmm. tiring having to do that because that's not how we exist as people. You know, I don't consciously go around thinking to myself, well, I'm half this and half that and a pinch of this and a pinch of that. You know, you're just yourself. And it got really tiring having to kind of pedal back and forth. Um, And so whenever I would focus on the purely British witchcraft type of thing, as much as I love it and I do, I always felt like I was ignoring one side of myself. And then I kind of went the other way and really threw myself into learning all of these other things. Um, But then I would also feel still that I was ignoring a part of myself. And so, you know, I just thought, fuck it. Part of rebel magic (laughs) is being self-determining as well, you know. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. (laughs) I'm at that age now where I can easily just shut out stuff I don't want to (laughs) hear. I'm I'm excited to get to that point eventually. Oh, it's so refreshing. <laughs> it's so good. And, I, you know, I don't mean like not listening to other people's opinions and stuff, because all of that stuff is important. But I just mean, you know, when people are questioning you, because I don't know if you get it, but I get it, or I used to get it an awful lot. Um, I used to work in a shop, and I can always remember people saying, oh, where are you from? And you get two kinds of people. So there's the kind of person who is genuinely interested on a human level about, you know, different peoples and different cultures, and they're really interested. But then you get, like, the arseholes who are maybe having a slight dig, you know. Mm -hmm. And so for those types of people, I just, like, pretend I didn't know what they were talking about until the point where it was really uncomfortable for them. (laughs) And they're embarrassed. (laughs) But so that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, you know, when I talk about race and mixed race and whatever you want to call it, um, because you do get that. And I think that's something people who aren't mixed don't understand how frustrating it actually is. Yeah. I mean, and I found too, when people ask me something like that, I can usually tell immediately if they're, you know, if it's like a fine conversation or not. Like, yeah. I, it's like an intuitive, like now I just know. Um, yeah. And I find a lot of people too who either are also mixed race or um, who are Asian. They'll know immediately that I'm somehow Asian. There's just yeah. There's just a knowing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and there's people also who who aren't are Asian and who aren't mixed race that are that mean like they they don't ask it disrespectfully. But then there are those people that's <laughs> a percentage. Yeah. That like does it to other you, and I've I've had yes. all those experiences as well. Yeah. And so, like, I'm really open and I love chatting to people. And it is really interesting when you get to talk to someone who is genuinely interested about, I don't know, the movement of people and different cultures and all of that. That's Those conversations are great. But, you know, if only all of them were like that. But then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of people who it's usually my eyes that will confuse, um, confuse someone. And there, I mean, I've, I've had the struggle with particularly since I'm Asian, of, um, like, men fetishizing that about oh, me, which yeah. is really gross. But, yeah, again, like, I can tell the difference between yes. someone who's like, like, oh, this is, it's it's cool that, you know, you have a lot of different experience yeah. and cultures, and then people who are like, oh, like, you're kind of like an anime girl. So, Ugh. you know. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it weird how you can, you kind of just, you can tell? Cause, because you're right, you can tell instantly, can't you, when those conversations first start like it's so weird mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like you develop a sense for it in the past year how have you found your understanding of rebel magic or your approach to it has changed or enhanced in some ways um do you know what I think it's been like the whole covid situation has been really <laughs> eye-opening to some degrees so because I talk a lot about rebel magic and I talk about a lot about alternative health um, and I feel like sometimes that can be dangerous territory for people um, 
you know what I mean? They're just, Mm -hmm. so for example, I don't know about where you are, but over here, there's a lot of people who um, think that COVID is a hoax and the vaccine is going to do this, this and this to you and all of that. And I found that when people engage me in a conversation and they bring that up knowing, you know, what I write about and what I talk about a lot, I think they're often surprised that I am pro-science. Mm-hmm. you know and I have a friend who's a nurse and who like you know you you just see different sides of things and so I found that part of the you know the rebel magic over this whole COVID um, period most of it's been good because I think it's been a wake-up call to people you know when it first happened here in the UK like the supermarkets were literally the shelves were empty it was like a an apocalypse film or something Mm -hmm. over here too um and so I think that really made people like or and I say ordinary people you know people who aren't into I don't know any kind of activism or they're not into any kind of magic or you know um I think it really made those people sit up and think shit you know we're in in a situation where possibly like you go to the supermarket and things like flour would be sold out. I had lots of requests for um, the foraging walk that I do. So in my time where I live, I, a couple of times a year, I take people out on a foraging walk where we identify different plants and trees and all of that kind of stuff. And I had a lot of requests for that. So I think it really made people actually sit up and take notice that things actually can happen on a massive scale. Because in my lifetime, I think that's been the first time that it's really affected people do you know what I mean where Mm -hmm. the possibility of not having food um has like really blown their minds and so in that respect it's been quite good that people are thinking about different ways of being but then in in the back of my mind I, I don't know I suppose as well I suppose the real tell will be next year or whenever things return to whatever was normal in the first place. And I think that will be the biggest tell in how people have changed. Um, I'd like to think people have changed for the better, but I think as well, human nature is we like comfort, we like what's comfortable and people are ready to go back to what was comfortable before. But I would like to hope that it's made people think a little bit differently about the whole many issues that we all face you know Mm -hmm. but I guess time will just tell with that I feel like one of the things that I've noticed a lot particularly in the last year have because I've moved a lot so I live like pretty nomadically normally and so and then COVID has I've been like going from one shelter to shelter I feel like (laughs) Uh, (laughs) one temporary time was with our mutual friends Jessica yeah um Paul but I have noticed a interesting disparity Within, so like, you know, there's a large narrative around activism that's been highlighted in this past year for obvious reasons yeah. with um, racial injustice, all those things that have existed before, but have come more to a spotlight now, even though they've yeah. always been there. Um, but one thing is like class disparity within activism as well. And like what it means to be open-minded. And I'm thinking of this also because I made the mistake of like going on TikTok the other night. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and and I saw something in it and it wasn't even um the the great witch talk which people talk about it it was like something else and it was someone who was talking about how small towns are like inherently closed-minded and like conservative and then cities are better because they're quote unquote liberal yeah. and you have more access to th- to like different cultures there. And what I immediately thought of was, well, I grew up in a small town, you know, like I grew up in a small town, yeah, <laughs> I grew up all over the place and I don't understand, like it, it's just, it seemed like a very strange take to make because I think people's life experiences in different types of settlements are obviously going to reflect their needs at the time. Like with, some small towns and like in mining towns because I grew up in a mining town. Yeah, people need those types of jobs if they're really embedded within capitalism and industrialization yeah. to survive. And so, if whether or not socially you believe something 
um, that's more, uh, I guess, like leftist, it's going to come particularly second to your need to put food on the table? Yeah, a hundred percent, you know. And that's something I talk about in the book, you know, and because it makes absolute sense to me. Um there's a lot of things I care about in the world. Um and I'm better off financially than I was, say, five years ago. Not much, but slightly better, you know. Um and there have been actual points where I know lots of people who struggle or who have struggled in their day-to-day lives. I live, like I said, in a really small, working-class rural town. And there's a lot of industrial jobs that prop up capital capitalism and all of that. And, you know, really, when somebody is forced to decide between their what they believe and their morals and what they would like to see, um, when they're forced to choose between that and actually having food on their table you know it's no choice at all and it can cause a lot of like it's actually soul destroying to be in that position you know um I've been there before and it really is awful but you know you gotta eat yeah and I feel like t- like takes like that too that push people into categories of this or that are also not helping and is what rebel magic is trying to move outside of you know like absolutely you know and it's just something that I see so often and you know I've had conversations before with like other leftists and um what have you and I feel like when you look online and you go on I don't know social media or whatever and you're looking at like leftist topics and you see a lot of infighting and a lot of backbiting and actually I think sometimes we miss the point. And the point is that in all of this backbiting and infighting, you know, we're missing out. How many people are there in the world who believe the same things and who want to see the same things, but they're not in that position to affect that? And Mm -hmm. I feel like if we could just kind of, and this is why mutual aid and solidarity is so important because it links people up. Um, and I've, I've found personally that when you start talking to people who maybe don't know about philosophy and they're not um, up to date on all of the jargon and the concepts, when you break it down and start talking to them, you know, in, in a conversational type of way, actually, I find nine times out of 10, they're not so far removed from your own position, but the reality of their existence of struggling to survive can you know, that trumps everything because it's such a tiring place to be in. And Mm -hmm. people who have never had to, like, worry about food, and I mean, really, I mean, actually worry about feeding your kids. When you're in that mindset all the time, it's so exhausting and it's all you can think about. It clouds everything else out because you're so busy worrying about your own survival because it's not guaranteed, you know. And, yeah, And I think if we can just pull together and have more actual solidarity and actual mutual aid that is meaningful in Mm. real life, I think until we get to that point, there's always going to be, um, you know, those classist kind of divisions. Yeah. I was really lucky when I lived in Oregon that I got to be a part of and really see mutual aid in action. And it's, it's so beautiful and that sounds so cheesy, <laughs> but, but it, it really is like yeah. in the midst of crisis, like we had horrible wildfires to the point where people had to wear like straight up gas masks to go yeah. outside sometimes. And there was a large unhoused population there and people were just really coming together. And I was like, wow, I didn't think this was possible, (laughs) but here it is in front of me. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes it sounds a bit corny, but I'm a massive believer in there's more that actually unites us than separates us. So we have to kind of along the way decide if that's what separates us is can be overcome. Sometimes it can't, like fascism is a massive no. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm never going yeah. to kind of bridge that gap with anybody. But, you know, there's lots of smaller ways where we're different, but sometimes those differences can seem so large. Like class, class is one of them, isn't it? You know, um, 
it's one of those things that when you're talking to an individual person, you can perhaps, you, d- you don't see it, you know, because you're talking to that person. But then when we start talking about groups of people and the working class or middle class or, you know, I feel it's those generalizations that sometimes get in the way. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because it wasn't really until recently, and by that I mean like the past couple of years, that I even started to like look for myself into what class actually is because I just kind of assumed that I was part of certain classes or things. And then when I looked up actual definitions or talked to more people, it was like, oh, I kind of had been (laughs) gaslit by the structure of society to think that I had more freedom than I actually do. Yeah. Yeah, a hundred percent. (laughs) You're right. And it is like the environments. So I always, I like I keep saying, I I live in a working class town. And I can always remember being at secondary school, which is, I guess, high school is what they'd call it in in the States and other parts of the Mm -hmm. world. So um, in secondary school. And I can always remember one of my friends having a fight with another girl. Okay. And I was actually off school that day, but I can always remember the head of year pulling me to the side the day when I returned back and like pretty much warning me against any retaliation because of how she perceived us you know we lived on this council estate that was rough and has had a bad rep and she I don't know what she thought if we were going to come to school and start I don't know gang warfare or something but so from an early age I always knew there was always that difference even like going back to primary school which is you go to primary school when you're like five to mm-hmm. 11. Even there, there was always those small differences. So I grew up being very aware that I was working class. But then in in a different way, that kind of, it jades your opinion a lot. Because as you kind of branch out, so you go through school and you might go to college or get a job and all of that stuff. But then in your mind, you're always thinking that people are looking down on you because of where you come from if that makes sense. So it kind of jades your opinion and makes you defensive. And so for a long while, I was kind of not anti anybody who wasn't working class, but I couldn't see that I had anything in common with them. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like I say, it's only until you start getting to know people and start broadening your own horizons that you, you see sometimes that's not always the case, you know. Yeah, it's hard. That's that's one like drawback that I found. I think from even when I started taking more like critical race and gender studies classes in yeah. college or talking to more people, you have to like really check in with yourself about okay, what am I internalizing to a degree that is not helping? Like if I yeah. look this deeply at the structure of something and now it's affecting my mental health and I didn't even though I I, I, I guess for me, as an example, as a mixed race person, there were things that I didn't think that I was being affected by that yeah. when I looked closer, I was. But then what do you do with that information? Yeah. <laughs> like, do I do I internalize this to a degree that is making me have beliefs that I'm not coming from my own experience or do I hold those in the realm of experience that is true and then not expect that from other people. And cause I don't know, I, yeah. I, I find that I would start to think the worst of people yeah. even <laughs> when they were not situationally by situation doing something like that to me. Yeah. And this is like part of the reason why this work is so, or can be so difficult because it's a lot of soul searching and a lot of questioning yourself, which isn't comfortable to do, you know? Um, there's no easy answer to that really is there it's just something you become aware of but then you also have to disentangle it from everything you know because like you say it's internalized and you know what do you do with it there's sometimes there's no easy thing to do with it sometimes having that knowledge of okay this is this and sometimes the hardest thing is the fact that there isn't you can't do anything about it (laughs) you know (laughs) um and so you just kind of, but I think once you're aware of it and then you can kind of go forward from there. But yeah, you could drive yourself insane thinking about all the what ifs and, mm-hmm. you know, I think the hardest part is just leaving it there. <laughs> yeah. 
sometimes things are just information and you don't yeah. have to like attach to them immediately and that's again so hard to learn to do yeah it is um and but all of this kind of self-work and see even with that conversation where people might not necessarily think it's inherently anything to do with magic to me that is a massive part of um shadow work because I think we kind of have this way of thinking of things in magical ways and not magical ways or um you know and so but for me all of that falls under the process of shadow work because we take all of that into our occult practices as well you know it's not just something that we leave behind when we step into the ritual space we carry all of that with us internally and so for me this is just one more thing that contributes to rebel magic because we can't begin to affect change until we kind of have a deeper understanding of ourselves and our own biases and all of that kind of stuff as well you know so wait when did you start training with voodoo um so i've been a practitioner for a while um for oh about I'd say about seven or eight years, but um, you know, to to become a mambo, it take it's another level. So, um, so although I've been um practicing voodoo for a long time, as a as a voodooisant, um, it's only recently that I've started my mambo training, um, and I I kind of use the analogy of the church to describe it a little bit. So it's like being part of a congregation you know but then to be a, a priest or a vicar or whatever else a minister you have to undergo different training and there's lots of different requirements on you it's kind of like that if that makes sense yeah it does is there any difficulties with having so many different practices and expectations on what people expect you to believe is real or not yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, there is, you know. Um, uh, I, I suppose it's something that you just learn to deal with as you go through it. So a lot of those kind of things... So I've been practising witchcraft for, like, years. Um, I can't even remember how many <laughs> years, but, like, a <laughs> long time. Um, and so I feel like all of that kind of stuff, when you tell people what you do, and I'm pretty open about it, you know, everyone has their own um, ideas about what witchcraft or magic is. Um, so I suppose I got a lot of that out the way with um, <laughs> during the witchcraft, you know, when it was just purely witchcraft. I think one of the biggest difficulties with having multiple traditions is finding the time to dedicate enough to each of them that you aren't just paying them lip service, you know. Mm. Um, and again, it goes back to having the you know having that practice with the death you know with the um emphasis on practice on the practice part they have to be extremely organized um because otherwise i would just have no time and what would be the point in any of it but yeah you know it definitely challenges people's perceptions i think and sometimes even in the pagan community so i can always remember in my local town there's quite a large um pagan community and so we were part I was part of that and we'd have moots which are just like social gatherings you know so there'd be we'd meet up in a pub and there'd be a bit of a study session first and then after it'd be like purely social you know linking mm -hmm. up with like-minded people and all of that and I can always remember one um one week I can't remember what exactly was brought up but somebody's comment was oh whatever next we'll be talking about voodoo next and like, well, actually, yes, we will, so, you know, because although they were there at a pagan and sometimes it surprises me how um, not closed mind minded. But I suppose when I first came into like paganism and magic and like the community aspect of it, I just kind of assumed that everybody would be pretty open minded about stuff. Me too. I <laughs> <laughs> and I was surprised how much that isn't the case mm -hmm. now. And so that, that comment about voodoo, although he didn't mean it in any kind of way, you know, it just highlighted to me that there's still a lot of misconception around things that people... And I suppose it just comes back to not having that information about it. Um, but, yeah, that was like a shocker for me 
when I first came into like the pagan community <laughs> how um yeah how everyone's not as open and free thinking as you would like yeah I came in I mean it sounds like you had a similar experience correct me if I'm wrong but of being like primarily solitary study solitary practitioner yeah. for a while and then having your own background and personal gnosis and then coming into a community expecting it to be similar and then being like what the fuck <laughs> yeah that is actually how it happened <laughs> no joke <laughs> yeah it's a steep learning curve mm -hmm. do you have any advice for people if they are traversing multiple traditions yeah i think for for the most part you know um be respectful to people absolutely and <laughs> You know, part, for me, that is just part of being human is like we treat people with a basic level of respect, you know. But there also will come a time where people will question what you are doing. And um, what I would say is learn to tell people to fuck off. Like. <laughs> <laughs> because fair enough if people are genuinely interested, but you are always going to get purists of one form of, or another who say you shouldn't do this and you should do this. And, you know, they give you lots of um, advice. Well, it's not even advice. It's more do's and don'ts. Um, but you have to make your own way. So don't be afraid to, you know, tell people that thanks, but no thanks. However, you might want to tell them that. Um, and just really strike out, research, but... There comes a time when you have to practice. Um, and one of the biggest things for me was making time for that practice. So with the witchcraft and the obia, you know, there there are similarities between the two. So they were really easy for me to incorporate. But then with the voodoo stuff and, you know, the so in the temple um, that I will be doing my mambo training in, our main lower are um, Papa Legba, Kalfu and the Gide. So they're the main ones who we honour. And we mm -hmm. have feast days for the others and what have you. Um, and so certain things for certain lower will be done on a certain day. So it's about really taking that time to plan, you know, plan the practical stuff like when can you make time for this when can you make time for that and there will be sacrifices um, and I think just going in with an open mind but also with the understanding that it's not going to be easy and you will have to sacrifice something um, and I think you know the rest comes with just experience and practice you know because um, we had there was someone who joined the OBA mentorship program and they were lovely but they've kind of decided not to carry it on and I'm convinced that part of that is just because they need to go and experience everything that's out there before then they can come back to it and know themselves a little bit more, mm -hmm. you know. Um, that is such a vital part of the process, whatever tradition. Um, so, yeah, like, don't skip that part of it. I know it's easier said than done because you want to, like, dive right in. But I feel like really take the time to explore um and it's fine to do that and it's fine to change your mind if you try something and actually it's not what you expected or you didn't enjoy it or it's just not for you. So just experience, experience everything. I like the idea of sacrifice a lot when it comes to magical work in general or offerings or whatever people want to call it as, you yeah. know, probably caveats to what things are. And even like you mentioned, like the sacrifices you make when you work on multiple traditions or when you decide to dive really deep into one, I feel like that's part of the initiation. Yeah, you know, and it's a natural part of it as well. It's only natural that you have to sacrifice something because for the most part, most people live incredibly busy lives, you know. Um, so just using my own example, um, I mean, my kids are older now, so it probably doesn't count so much. Um, they're like <laughs> 20 and 18, so I'm like <laughs> having great times at the moment. Um, but when they were younger, you know, I had a family. I also worked. And there's all of the other constraints on the time that, you know, making time to do this and doing stuff with friends. And even right down to like just watching mindless TV. Um, and 
you have to really decide what you are willing to give up. For me, um, it was, you know, I would sacrifice sleep even. So sometimes what I would need to do would require that I do it myself and that there's nobody around. And I live in a house full of people. So the only time I can do that is either really late at night or really early in the morning. You know, I've been known to set my alarm for like half to three o'clock in the morning to get up to do a specific thing because it needs doing and mm-hmm. then when you're talking about this to people even people who themselves practice you know they'll say oh that's crazy like why would you do that and to me it's like well why wouldn't I do it mm-hmm. um, so it's just about really finding what you're willing to sacrifice and what you're not willing to sacrifice I find that most people have firm lines in the sand when it comes to what they're not willing to sacrifice so anything I think once you've kind of got that straight in your mind, what is sacred to you, what you're not willing to sacrifice, then everything else is negotiable. Um, Yeah, but sacrifices, there's no, like, even in life, there's nothing without sacrifice of some sort. Do you know what I mean? And it it just depends what what is meaningful to you and what you want to get out of it. Um, But, yeah, people should totally get used to the idea of sacrificing something. Um, because it will happen at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you don't make the choice, then it will be made for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And not in like some ominous way either. Sometimes if you don't make the choice, if you don't have it in your mind that, right, I'm going to come home from work and yes, I'll be tired and yes, I just want to sit down, but I'm going to go out and I'm going to do this. And if you don't make that conscious decision, what will happen is you'll come home from work and you'll be tired and you'll sit down. And before you know it, the evening's gone. Um, I, I know that from experience, you know. Mm-hmm. Me too. And you look back at the end, you go into bed and you're thinking, actually, I probably could have gone and done it. Mm-hmm. You know, Um so, yeah, <laughs> there's always a sacrifice somewhere along the line. And if you don't make that choice, then it gets made for you. And nine times out of ten, it's not the sacrifice really that you wanted. Yeah. I find it lately specifically, like I'm juggling a lot of stuff in my life currently because I live particularly, I think, divided in terms of who knows what about me. Yeah. And I'm just realizing that this isn't going to work. <laughs> Yeah. Like it's I I am gonna have to make some decisions on what I keep in my life and um if things are requiring me to keep a level of separateness like with this all my magic work and everything. Yeah. Um if they're gonna require that to be not part of my life, then maybe they're not part of that those things aren't part of my yeah. life anymore. Yeah, and I think that's you know, something that most people go through at some point. Um and I found in my own experience you have to be really quite firm with people, you know. Um, like my dad, oh, God love him, but, you know, he's one of those people that he calls me like a snake oil saleswoman. He's not Christian, I know. My grandma was like heavily Christian, but my dad, he's not Christian in the way that, I don't know if it's the same over there, but like Christianity, even if you're not a Christian, it's still kind of, I don't know, most people who aren't Christians would call themselves Christian because they don't know what else to say. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's very similar over here. And I think embedded within our culture, even people who don't consider themselves particularly religious, the default moral code is very Christian. Yeah, Yeah, precisely. And so while he is kind of, he is supportive in a way, but he he makes those comments. And there comes a time when you have to say, look, this is what I do. I take it seriously. You don't have to like it or believe in it. But you have to, you know, you have to kind of tell people to to stop, Mm -hmm. really. And if they don't, then you have to make, like, luckily, like, my dad has stopped. And he still makes the odd comment, but it's nothing. Do you know what I mean? But yeah, And that's very lighthearted. But I know, like, there's people in situations where, like the people closest to them would freak out if they knew what they were doing either because of their own religious beliefs or just because of like I don't know the negative connotations around all of it so there is some level of discomfort when it comes to magic um just because you have to navigate other people and also your own um comforts and routines but, yeah. you know, it's a process everyone goes through. And I think it's needed because then it really, it either makes it stronger in your mind that actually, yes, this is what I want to do. Or it makes you realise that actually 
you can't do it because you know for whatever reason um yeah so it's something everyone goes through but when you're going through it it can be pretty hard like I'm pretty open now about what I do everybody knows um you know and a lot of people are really interested in it but then at the same time there's always those questions of disbelief and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff so it's just about navigating it and again it goes back to all of that shadow work and work on the self and it's about knowing what you're willing to accept and what you're not willing to accept um because there's you know I've, <laughs> for a long time in my life I just took a lot of stuff because I didn't want to rock the boat or cause conflict but then it's like a, there's a switch in your mind and you think well actually no I'm going to do this because it's meaningful to me and those people aren't that meaningful to me so <laughs> you know it happens to everyone but it's it's yeah. tough to go through at the time it's only really with hindsight that you can see how beneficial it was to go through it I suppose it's the same with everything though mm-hmm. I find there's stages to it too like there's yeah. there's I didn't think that I would have to do this again and then here I am having to you know make these yeah. sacrifices and adjustments be like oh like I almost feel like I went from being really open to being really closed and then yeah. um and then now I'm trying to find an integrative balance yeah and it's hard isn't it because sometimes some of the reasons we close off is because we want to protect ourselves or we want to protect mm-hmm. what we're doing from sometimes you just get sick and tired of having to defend what you're doing or you know people questioning it even when those questions are well-meaning you don't necessarily always want to go over it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's hard. But you're right, it does happen in stages. Right, I feel like it's just a process, isn't it? And, I, you know, I feel the same with everything. It's, it's always ongoing, so it's always striving to be better, um, even though it doesn't feel like it at the time you're going through those things, you know. <laughs> Yeah. It's really easy to get trapped in like that. I don't know. It's like on a hall of mirrors of your own projections too, of what people will think of you. Yeah. Like I, I've definitely caught myself in that. Like I've, I, I'm like in this stage of thinking everything is a threat and I'm like, okay, man, look, yeah. it's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and you're right. That is, um, I'll give you an example. Like my sister also practices witchcraft and we have like a little bit of a, um, working group we hook up sometimes and do things together um, and she was all in like she came into work because we work together as well and she came all into work and she's like oh no so she got she's had some stuff going on and she's like I think I've been cursed I found blood on my doorstep this morning and it's like there are other pagans and occultists in the area but I'm thinking like well I don't think anyone's cursed you and anyway it turned out a cat had caught a rat and killed it on the doorstep because that's what cats do Mm -hmm. um but you know it goes back to what you were saying it's easy to get caught up in your own like hall of mirrors and to see those things everywhere else um and it's just easily done and you know a lot of work goes into untangling our own perceptions and you do sometimes have to take a a step back from yourself and kind of give your head a shake you know and just look at things with new eyes you definitely yeah. have to do that it's just annoying <laughs> this might be like an abrupt subject change but it just popped into my <laughs> head um you go for walks in the woods a lot woodland walks uh-huh. i see them on the gram <laughs> yeah i look like, i can't help it i'm, like, I'm addicted <laughs> do you find that the woods feel differently lately yes Yes, I do. Um, so, like, going out for, like, woodland walks is something that I just, like, love doing. I've always done it. Um, and part of that change for me was seeing more people in the woods. And I turned into, like, a crabby old woman. So, that means my partner <laughs> would go, like, for a normal early Sunday morning walk in the woods. And there was, like, fuckloads of people. And I'm like, who are all these people? What they do in my woods? <laughs> So there's that aspect to it. But I also, um, there, there, is, there is a change, I, I think. And I can't necessarily describe what that change is. But it, there's definitely something different. 
they feel bigger to me. Yeah. Like I've personally, and this is not, I mean, my reaction is going to be different than everyone else's. I've been staying out of them more, but I don't know why, what that is. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. <laughs> Could just be where I live, but <laughs> yeah, possibly, possibly. Like different woods definitely have different feels to them as well, you know. Um, and even the same parts of some wood. So, like when I had my before my um big dog Boo died, I would like my I have two. I used to have two dogs. Dexter is like a little terrier and is like just wild. And Boo was a pit bull, but she was like so lovely and sweet and obedient. And Dexter's just like not. Um, but I used to take them both into the woods. I'd have to keep Dexter on his lead because he'd see something. I would lose him because, you know, he's a little... He's bred to hunt. We don't hunt, but that's what he's bred for. So if you see something, it's going to chase it. But I can always remember going to a different part of the same woods that I go to quite often. It's quite a large woods. And I thought, we'll go in this different direction and just kind of explore and just go for a walk. And I can always remember getting so far and then I looked back and the big dog boo she was like way back and no matter how much I called her like she wouldn't come and that was enough for me to think right so because I'd already felt it in myself you know that maybe an unwantedness um some kind of it was definitely a negative feeling but I kind of just shut that out I was like no don't be stupid am I just you know but the dog must have felt it as well. So when I turned back and saw that the dog wasn't following and like like I say, she's really obedient, like that just made me think, fuck this shit and just turn back. Like something didn't want me mm. there. Um, and I think that's something else in the pagan community. It's like we've come to, and it's also something else I talk about a lot. We've come to almost kind of romanticise the, the mythic of the wild woods, you know. Um, but actually... Sometimes it's just the land where you are in that moment. You can connect to that land and the spirits that reside there. It doesn't necessarily have to be in some beautiful woodland. I mean, the woods are my home, but, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think we see the woods as kind of romanticised. And that in itself is problematic because then we fall into the trap of thinking the land where we find ourselves, whether it's, the city centre or a rural town or a council estate or whatever else we keep we see that then as being worthless mm-hmm. um magically speaking as well as you know just generalization but it's not and I often say to people like go out and you have to learn to see where you are with new eyes um to see that actually the land and the spirits that reside where you reside they are um worth investing your time in and building the relationship with that so yeah the woods definitely feel different big is a nice way of describing it actually yeah i moved um a few months ago and i noticed that i mean i it's that they just feel so different here in general because it's a whole different um climate and biome yeah. but i've i've noticed like i've i've chatted with a couple of people recently on my podcast, whenever I bring up the woods, it's like a different conversation. It's much more like what you were just speaking of than a little bit ago when it was a lot more like, oh, the woods are always wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now yeah. it's a little bit more like, wow, like there's a lot going on in the woods right now. <laughs> yeah. And in a way, like really deep down, I kind of love it because to me, it signifies that people like whether it's just something, cause we had a lot of lockdowns here in the UK where like you couldn't, all the other normal ways people would entertain themselves had been closed off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people kind of rediscovered their love of nature. But so it's it's good because from that, hopefully then can come those really strong foundations to build on to kind of save our wild spaces and whatever have you. But like on a selfish level, I was just like, hmm people <laughs> yeah whenever I'm in a crowd of people now I'm like this is unnatural what is going on yeah I know. <laughs> one of the things and it's quite bad but one of the things about COVID that I used to say to my partner that I actually like 
as a as a plus side was that you couldn't go into people's homes now whereas before you might be obliged you know if you were just going to pop around someone just to drop something off and they're like oh come in come in and not that i'm antisocial or anything but like i have a lot on and sometimes you don't want to say no because you don't want to be impolite but then covid mm-hmm. was like oh, i'm sorry we can't come in you know covid mm-hmm. um that was like one of the silver linings <laughs> one of the few <laughs> But yeah, yeah, I found my home is much more of a very special place to me because yeah. it's where I live my entire life mostly. So yeah, no. <laughs> like my garden, I feel the same with my garden because, like I say, the woods are my place. But then all of a sudden, there's loads of people, and before you could like just go anywhere and you know. So now my garden has almost become that space to me. Like I'm quite lucky; I've got a large garden with lots of trees and nature and all of that. So it's it's fab, but you know I think yeah having a decent home life um and a happy home whatever that looks like has really been highlighted the importance of that I think in COVID Mm -hmm. um and even in terms of like getting back to the magical aspect of stuff it's really important that you know you can practice somewhere where you feel safe um and unjudged as well because it must be awful to live in a house with people and not be able to be your free self yeah you know that must be like quite soul destroying and oftentimes that's one of the barriers in people's way when it comes to um magic and practicing magic and so yeah it's definitely made me grateful for having a happy home life for sure Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm really grateful for the past couple of places that I lived um, with Paul and Jess and then yeah. where I live now with my roommate. And it's just this magic and everything is part of the normal life. It's like, oh, yeah. you felt weird this morning. I felt weird, too. I had yeah. weird dreams. And it's like a fact. We should discuss this because it seems important. <laughs> yeah. And it's like so <laughs> those kind of happenings, they're great, aren't they, that you can be in that situation with like minded people. It's just like. I can't even say how much it adds to your own well-being mentally um, as well as your magical practice as well. It's always good to have Mm -hmm. people you can soundboard off against and, you know, that's really good. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming back on the show this week. Oh, you're welcome. Anytime. I love hanging out with you. Oh, my gosh. I love hanging out with you, too. (laughs) I just – I know that – like I can, I don't, I'll see stuff and it will make me think of you like quite often. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know what? I actually thought of you the other week because um, in the OBA group, part of the part of what I've got people doing is like building their relationships with plant spirits. And I can just remember the first time we talked, and you were talking about that encounter you had with what was the plant? Is it oleander? Yes, yes. <laughs> so that made me think of you when I was like thinking about that um, planning for my for my students. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, that story is so funny to me still because it's like I don't quite know what was going on, but it, it's a classic. Uh, it, it, to me, it highlighted like you can work with plants and you can meet with them in vision, but like sometimes what they have to say is not like all lovey dovey. Sometimes yeah. they just want to throw up in your working energetically. <laughs> yes. So, and when Oleander throws up in your flower essence, you probably shouldn't use it. Uh, (laughs) I often wonder if I had ended up drinking that, if um, I would have thrown up myself, if it was like a warning of like accidental poisoning too, if I'd done it wrong somehow. I know. Oh, you'll never know now. (laughs) Yeah. Thankfully. uh, (laughs) Yes. Oh, you know, I actually have a question about a poison plant. Yes. So I had a friend who they grew mint in a planter box because they live in Mm -hmm. the city uh, that had a dead Datura body in it. And they ended up getting really sick from using that mint plant in a tea. How? How strange. So they they wonder if if the dead Datura body that was in the soil somehow impacted like the biochemistry of the mint plant to some degree. I don't know if you have an answer, but I don't know if you've ever heard of anything like that. I've never heard of anything like that. Um, I don't know if it's actually possible. That's something for me to look into. When you say the the Datura body, what do you mean? Like the seed pod, the the old roots, the... I think it was like a dead Datura plant. Oh, just like been buried over. Oh, okay. Hmm. 
I mean, I've never heard that, but, you know, never say never. Yeah, it was very strange. I'd never heard of it either. So yeah. I've just been asking around. Hmm. I'm going to Google that. <laughs> <laughs> but also to me, it, it often seems like it's not out of the realm of the possibility of of a detura plant being like, this was my territory and then energetically yeah. being like, well, I'm going to get upset about this now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and like one of the things that I talk to people is when we, when I talk about plants a lot, um, for me, that's part of spirit work. And so you never know, you never know how spirit interacts with other spirits around it um, and all of that kind of stuff. So there's, you know, it's really, I find that question actually really intriguing well if people would like to read your work your articles find your book your mentorships and classes where can they look um so for i write for gods and radicals which is um i think their website is a beautiful resistance but if you type in gods and radicals you'll find it um the house of twigs which is um a, a website um there's also Which Way magazine, which is a subscriber magazine about like everything witchcraft. Um, I also have my own personal blog at Emma Catherine Wild Witchcraft, and I put in there a lot of links to whatever I've got going on, whether it's courses or workshops or that kind of thing. And you can also buy the book Reclaiming Ourselves at Gods and Medicals. Well, wonderful. And if you would like to find me and you don't already know where that is, it's going to be mothmana.com for a gallery of my digital art. And you can also find me on Instagram at mothmanatarot and Patreon at patreon.com slash mothmana. So thanks again, Emma. This is the part of the podcast where I click stop recording, but I keep talking to you. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for having me back. <laughs>